Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Christopher Gambino, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Christopher Preston about his new book, The Synthetic Age, Outdesigning Evolution, Resurrecting Species, and Reengineering Our World. Dr. Christopher Preston, welcome to the show. Very happy to be here, Chris. Thank you. I was wondering if you would begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm an Englishman by birth. I uh, spent the first 21 years of my life there. And when I was 21, I thought I need to get some grad school time. And I thought I need to be somewhere different. So I headed out to Colorado State and worked in applied ethics there with some of the early environmental thinkers. And as well as studying this new discipline, I found myself entranced by these sort of powerful landscapes, these sort of rugged, wild landscapes. The first summer I was in Colorado, I took myself off up to Alaska. I'd heard that Alaska was the place people went in the summer break in the U.S. So I went up there. I worked in those landscapes, in the fisheries, industries. And I realized I was experiencing the, the sort of bigger wild, the more remote, the more elemental, the more spectacular kinds of landscapes that just weren't there for me in England. And so this got me keyed into environmental philosophy and some of the questions that environmental philosophy asks. And uh, over the years of my time in the United States, I've sort of seen those debates mature and change and shift. Uh, and I ended up working on these technologies that relate to the environment. Excellent. Thank you so much for that introduction. I want to ask a, a quick question regarding the title of the book. You do quite a bit of detailing this notion of the synthetic age. Can you help us understand how you came to be interested in this, write about it, and then kind of how do you come with this this term, the way that you call this period, the synthetic age? Sure. So, you know, after a couple of a uh, couple of dozen years in the United States studying environmental ethics, I saw this word, the Anthropocene, come in and start dominating the conversation. And the gist of it was, we've arrived in the Anthropocene. Everything's changed. Nature is over. We need to take control. Uh, so, I was hearing this from all these sort of sources that this is where we were at now, and and that was a radical thing for environmental ethics because environmental ethics had been about protecting the last traces of the natural world and finding value there and honoring that value, all this kind of business. But the Anthropocene was saying, well, that's gone. It's over. We just now need to take control. So I, th I actually started off thinking, well, I want to write a book about the Anthropocene. And I was very fortunate to have a potential editor say, uh, when I suggested a book about the Anthropocene, this editor rolled her eyes and said, I think we've already passed peak Anthropocene in the publishing literature. And I thought, yeah, that's probably true because this, this word doesn't really capture everything. You're hearing it everywhere, but it doesn't really capture everything. And here's what I was thinking about that. The Anthropocene is a marker of a set of giant mistakes, giant pollution activities, uh, large-scale sort of messing up of the planet that we've done inadvertently. So if you think of the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, inadvertent in the sense that we weren't planning on warming up the atmosphere. If you think about the mercury in fish, not deliberate. We weren't planning to make fish carry mercury around with them. So all of these markers of the Anthropocene, and they were global markers. This, you know, It wasn't fake news. It was real. The world was affected. But all of these markers had been unintentional. No one had set out to change the world that way. But what I was starting to see is a suite of technologies arriving where 
there were intentional changes. There were deliberate, global-scale, intentional interventions into some of the most fundamental processes that shape the Earth. So, for example, um, into the amount of energy that enters through the atmosphere from the sun with climate engineering, into the way that DNA uh, forms into genomes with synthetic biology. These intentional, very dramatic interventions, which to me didn't look like simply an Anthropocene. They looked like something else. They looked like the deliberate shaping and building of a different world. And so I thought, well, I, we need a different name for that. You know, this is not the Anthropocene. The anth Anthropocene is the marker of a set of mistakes, a set of unintentional actions, global in scale. We need a new word, a synthetic age. A synthetic age is the world that you build literally from the atom upwards all the way to the atmosphere. Yeah, you, you nailed it. This transition that you cited in your introduction is how I see you, fr you frame the whole book around. And so I just want to pull a quick quote from the introduction where you set us up for what things might need to look like moving forward. Um, here you say, from now on, however, things will be different. After we fully awaken to the global nature of the damages we have inflicted, we have no option but to make our decisions about future actions more self-aware. And so this age, right, that you're talking about is an age where we're going to have to act. And the book kind of details all those technologies that are coming online that allow for pretty much direct action from our, our generation now and generations to the future. And so I want to transition us to kind of some of those technology that you start talking about and then go to more of the macro scale. And you kind of set things up this way, right? We start early in your book in the nano scale, about as small as we can get. And then we move to more macro scale conversations of what this synthetic age looks like and, and our role in it. Um, and I, I might be outing myself here, but I certainly had not followed the nanotechnology conversation all the way back to 1959. And I'm thankful you did. And it was it was mind blowing to just see how long ago this was on people's minds and to where we've where we are today. So if you could talk a little bit about the the way you went about the research and a little bit about those technologies on the the small, the nano scale as we move our way forward. Yeah, and before I do, I, I have to sort of put an important preface in here, right? Um, I suggest we're on the cusp of this age. What I don't do is I don't say, let's embrace this age right from the beginning. You know, let's do everything that we can to create a synthetic earth. Um, really, I, in the book, I try and be ambivalent. I try and say, here are the technologies. Here's what seems to be heading our way. Here's what could be on the cards. Uh, and I outline them uh, in a way that, that says, well, this is what the advocates say is possible. Uh, and these are some of the dangers. And, and I I put that in as a preface because it's interesting that the my very environmental friends read the book and say, wow, this guy's gone off the deep end in his uh, embrace of these radical technologies. <laughs> and my technology friends say, well, this guy's pretty uh, Luddite. He's pretty technophobic. Um, and, you know, I guess if I've, if I've irritated people on both sides, I maybe did a good job. But uh, I think, it, you know, I, I like people to know from the get-go that I try and be 
ambivalent. You know, I try and say there's good things here, there's bad things here. We just need to know what's going on. Um, but anyway, I'll, I'll, you know, you're, you're right. I start at the atom because I think you can tell this tale from the atom all the way up to the atmosphere. And, you know, this guy, Richard Feynman in, in the 50s, just sort of made a casual observation uh, that in a famous lecture, uh, which he titled, There's Plenty of Room at the Bottom, just kind of made this casual observation that if you could get down into that atomic level, you could manipulate things in a way that we've never manipulated them before. And in the late 50s, you couldn't do that. Like there were, you had no tools to go in there and manipulate. But Feynman knew that there was enough space there, I mean, literally enough space, that you could move around the atomic structures uh, and create new forms, new shapes of matter. And those forms and shapes would have dramatic new properties. You could build things on very miniature scales that could do unimagined functions for humanity. And so he threw that out there as a speculation in the 50s. Uh, and everybody sort of said, well, you know, Feynman knows what he's talking about. He must be right about this. Um, let's, let's see if we can figure out how to actually manipulate things down there. And, and the technologies didn't arrive for a couple more decades. Um, but eventually, the, one of the sort of marker moments was when some technicians at IBM managed to pick up xenon atoms and rearrange them so that they spelt IBM. Uh, and I think that was in the 80s somewhere. So, you know, they proved that you could actually get down in there at that atomic level and move things around. And, and if you can do that, then what sort of structures can you build? I mean, the, the, the world sort of opens up in possibility that you can create new types of machines, new types of properties. It's almost like you, you um, create a sort of second world of potential uh, out of material matter. And, and people got very excited about this. Yes, they did. You you wrote about this excitement, and I want to corroborate your kind of centrist view of just kind of laying out the options by noting one of the things I found so fascinating about the this book, The Synthetic Age, is how it's both part history of these new technologies and the these fields of science, as we'll continue to talk about, and part kind of mini biographies of the key players involved in these new fields of study, as well as part kind of debate between the prominent figures on both sides, as you say, that are trying to figure out how to embrace or respond to this advent of the the precipice we're on of the synthetic age. So I just want to put that out there that you do a great job about kind of detailing the debates. And I found it so fascinating that in every single scenario, you're inviting kind of both sides and talking about the, the key players. And I learned a great deal about all these key figures. Um, some of those key figures will continue into this kind of repositioning of Adam's conversation moves further into kind of the philosophical debate between what that looks like in repositioning Adams. You've got Eric Drexler that you um, mentioned on one side and kind of Richard Smalley mentioned on the other side. And they both come from kind of different fields of study, but are approaching the conversation and, and debating the conversation. Can you tell us a little bit about how you, one, decided to kind of frame all these conversations based on the viewpoints of the key figures and then what that research looked like into figuring out the breadth of the debate. Yeah, well, you know, at first, the debate between Drexler and Smalley looks like a very in-house debate. Um, I mean, it's not 
it's not one that, that people would have heard about probably outside of nanotechnology. Um, but when you look at it a little closer, it, it's not so much an in-house debate. It's actually a debate that illustrates some of the larger points that reoccur kind of throughout the book. So the, the gist of it was this. Um, Drexler thought that when you got down to that atomic level, it was basically all about physics. If you had the machines that could move atoms around, you could make anything you want. I mean, you know, like you sort of, you pick up a building block, you move it from one place, you put it in another place and you stack it alongside some other building blocks and you make whatever you want. Smalley was a chemist uh, and he thought that that's not how it works. Uh, and Smalley sort of introduced some poetic kind of language that there's sort of a dance. Uh, it's, it's like love, there's attraction uh, and particles um, uh, come together or move apart, uh, not on the basis of whether somebody picks one up and puts it somewhere, but on, on the basis of the chemical and physical properties that allow them to be put together or allow them to be taken apart. So Drexler says it's physics. Smalley says it's chemistry. Um, it's, that illustrates a, a bigger kind of tension that, that I think comes up again and again in different places. Because if you're, on the, if you're on the Drexler side, you sort of think humans can just go in there and build. We can remake stuff. We can do what we want. If you're on the Smalley side, you have to say, well, you know, the world has its own agency. The world has its independence. And we have to work in a sort of contextual relationship with that world where, you know, we push, the world gives a bit, and then the, the world pushes back. And there's sort of this, this dance of back and forth. So in a way, even though that's an in-house debate um, that, that these two had, it becomes a, a bigger sort of emblem of how to think about the world. Is the world something you can manipulate in any which way you want? You just sort of impose your human design on it as a mechanical engineer. Or does the world have some sorts of inherent properties that we can bend we can push, but we can't ultimately have 100% control over. So I thought it was a, an, an interesting kind of illustration of, of what was to come in the book. And moving to some of the philosophical conversation, you quote this idea of deep technologies, and you suggest this is really key for us moving forward and how we approach and think about the synthetic age. Can you detail a little bit more about stumbling upon this idea of deep technologies and how it does help us uh, understand and frame and work through this coming synthetic age? Sure. So I, you know, I come at this with two sort of conversations going on in my head. One is the one where, you know, I'm just sort of interested in science and tech. And, you know, I think about, well, what can we do and what's possible, what's not possible, what dramatic things are, are uh, about to happen. So there's that conversation. The other conversation is the environmental ethics one where I'm sort of thinking, well, there's this natural world, and this natural world has taken uh, four and a half billion years of, of Earth being here to, to form in this fashion, and there's something valuable and ethically significant about this world. Uh, and these technologies appear to be rewiring this world or remaking this world. So I've got these two conversations going on in my head. Technology is great, it's exciting. The natural world is morally significant. It's been there a while, uh, and you know we've got to ask what sort of alterations we 
should and should not make. So with those two conversations in my head, you know, I encountered this term deep technology, um, which came from Keacock Lee, who's, she's a, a British uh, philosopher of technology. And what she was trying to capture with that idea of a deep technology was a technology that didn't just do something to the surface. It did something to, if you like, the metabolism. That wasn't uh, Lee's term, but it's the term that I think fits really well. A deep technology gets into the metabolism of the earth and begins a fundamental kind of rewiring, uh, a rewiring that changes how the world works, not just how the world looks, but how the world works. And so I started to see this suite of emerging technologies as deep technologies, technologies that change Earth's metabolism. Uh, and, and that's why I think those technologies are the emblems of the synthetic age. Um, they start to create a different kind of world. And so the environmental voice is saying, whoa, this is, uh, this is a big change. This is something <laughs> that takes us away from planetary history. But the technology voice is saying, wow, this is amazing. You know, we can do stuff that we couldn't even have dreamt of before. So it sort of creates this tension uh, that operates, I think, throughout the book. Yes, let's carry that tension forward. Uh, I certainly sat in it and wrestled, right? We're in this age of genetic modification, um, GMOs, right? And that's that's really prevalent on the, the different segments of public's minds. But then w you take it a step further. We're talking about artificial organisms. We're talking about actually building them from the ground up. And so we go into this synthetic biology that really, for me, if I'm, if I'm outing myself again, is that was very tenacious for me to kind of wrestle with in my mind about, am I on board with this or, or not? How, what do I do with this new technology? So can you take us a little bit further into kind of the building from, um, we got the genome project and you said, well, that's a great, but here's where we are and what we can do with that. And that wasn't the end goal. And so we're now moving forward. Tell us a little bit more about the research you did for kind of detailing the artificial organisms. Yeah. So I, I, uh, started to realize that there's something going on at the moment that is a lot more dramatic than simply uh, inserting a gene into a plant so that it does something for you. So, you know, if I can be a little heretical here, um, inserting a gene into an agricultural crop is relatively conservative. <laughs> All right, let me qualify that. It's, <laughs> it's conservative. No, seriously, it is. It's conservative because the, the crop itself is the product of um, selection. Uh, it's artificial selection. You know, humans have done the, the breeding. They've sort of worked to create a particular crop. Um, but it's the product of selection. So those are processes that are familiar earthly processes. And then when you grab a gene from a different plant, that gene has also been the product of selection, whether it's natural selection or maybe aided by a little bit of artificial selection. And so you put these two things together. And yeah, it's a pretty impressive technology and, and it does raise some eyebrows, but it is relatively conservative because it's a product of existing uh, long-time familiar processes. Let's contrast that with building a synthetic organism where you say, I don't really care what the world has already. 
because I can do this myself in the lab according to my own design. So you literally go get the bottles of chemicals, you design a genome, you synthesize it, you stitch it together uh, into this uh, long and, and potent thing, and then you put it inside a, 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 with today's technology, you put that genome inside a bacterium. So we haven't got beyond synthetic bacteria yet, but we're almost there. You put it inside a bacterium and that genome then drives this bacterium. So you have a wholly uh, synthetic genome doing the work that previously creatures created by Darwinian forces have done. To me, that's something radically different. It, it makes traditional biotech look relatively conservative. This is something radically different. So designing life, uh, recreating life, if you are thinking about de-extinction, or shaping life around the world, if you are thinking about sending gene drives out into the wild world. These are incredible departures from anything that's happened before uh, and, and things that really get into Earth's metabolism. Yeah, and it, and it moves us forward because we're now, we're, we're going from kind of the, the really nano scale to um, an organism scale. And that, that, organiz that organism conversation really moves us into kind of ecosystem conversation. Like you said, if we're going to let take gene, advantage of gene drives and really shape our surrounding, um, your chapter on ecosystems to order was probably the one I had the, the most fun reading. Um, a debate that's um, new in all relative terms to me in the last five years, just thinking, rethinking, um, the idea of natural, right? That was a big part of it. Wild. Um, a big part of the conversation is what is wild? What is natural? Tell us a little bit about how you coming from those standpoints of your, your background, the environmental ethics side, right? Kicks back and, and engages this conversation of, of ordering ecosystems. So the, the kind of environmental ethics I was trained into the kind of, I sort of grew into uh, was the kind where you look out on a landscape that's relatively untouched and, and you admire, you deeply admire, uh, and you're in some sense of awe of the physical forces uh, that have created that landscape in front of you. So that, that's sort of traditional environmentalism. Um, it has its critics. Uh, it tends to be somewhat ethnocentric. Uh, sometimes it tends to be a little misanthropic uh, because it, it champions landscapes without humans rather than ones with humans, it tends to not pay attention to uh, environmental issues that are relevant in cities. So it, it's an environmental ethic that is admittedly somewhat limited, but I would say it's an environmental ethic that has a lot of intuitive power for a lot of people, that the natural wild world is something that generates a feeling of awe and respect or something along those lines. So the Anthropocene discussion uh, throws down a challenge. It kind of lays down the gauntlet and says that type of world is no more. That type of world, which does its own thing, where humans haven't uh, interfered or haven't uh, rearranged it, that type of world is no more. And it says, let's get used to a more proactive managing of these landscapes. And so you get uh, work by people like Emma Maris in her book, Rambunctious Garden, Peter Kareva, uh, who used to be with the Nature Conservancy, 
um, you get work by folks like those saying, all right, it's time. We have to, we have to take over these natural processes. We have to shape them according to our designs and according to our desires. That's a, a deep, deep challenge to that traditional environmentalism I was talking about. And so with a little bit of biography I gave you where I'd sort of come over from England and, you know, I'd been in these very managed Anthropocene landscapes, if you like. They, they didn't call them Anthropocene landscapes when I was growing up, but I think they should have done. Um, so I'd come from those landscapes and I'd sort of uh, drunk the Kool-Aid, if you like, of these uh, big wild landscapes in Alaska and Montana and Oregon and Colorado. Um, I, I found that to be a uh, sort of a challenge to this worldview I had embraced. And so I wanted to sort of engage that from a perspective of environmental ethics. And, you know, it's not so much a technology debate at this point. Um, you know, that the earlier chapters on synthetic biology and nanotechnology are deep in um, the sort of minutiae of these technologies. But the, the middle chapters on, on ecosystems, they're more about management, sort of landscape management. And, you know, what is the human role? What's permissible? What's impermissible? How much rearranging should we do? How much should we make nature synthetic or make nature artificial? And, um, you know, again, I, I, I try to make it clear that I'm ambivalent about it, like that there is, there is some intense management that has to happen. Um, you know, it's too late to kind of step back and say, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not involved. It's nothing to do with me. There is some intense management that has to happen. But I think you can go too far down that management line uh, and you can forget the old line which is the you know let it be stand back you know nature has its own right uh, to do its thing so that was I, I was wrestling with that pretty hard in my own mind as I was writing those chapters yeah and you if I'm reading it correctly you kind of point to that whole romanticized idea and, and what we do next as this uh, social construction of reality. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, that terminology and, and what that really means? So it's uh, philosophers love to use terms like social construction. <laughs> and uh, it, you know, what, what it essentially means is anytime you look out on the world, um, you don't get a direct access to the world. You get a picture that is filtered through your concepts and categories and biases and your assumptions and, and your preferences. You sort of see the world as you want to see it. And so translating that onto this, this debate, um, you know, you, I, look, I was looking out on these landscapes in Alaska, for example, and, and seeing a wild, untouched world. And I was missing stuff like, for example, indigenous presence or, you know, uh, historical uh, reshaping of, of the landscapes. Um, so I, I come at that. That is a socially constructed uh, viewpoint. But it's equally socially constructed to say, you know, we're in charge. This is our role. This is what's always happened. This is what has to happen. Um, and so these landscapes are nothing but a product of, of human works. That, too, is socially constructed. So where does that leave you with management? Well, it, it leaves you with a sort of complicated balancing act, um, deciding how much to step back and let nature uh, do its thing and how much to jump in and to rearrange things. And so in the middle of that balancing act, I think uh, what I like to do is I like to sort of set back and 
and zone in on the parts of the world where non-human agency is most manifest. And, and this one way to see non-human agency is, is obviously in charismatic animals. And, you know, I, I was just really, my experiences in Alaska really moved me on this. You know, when you, you sort of show up on the water in Alaska and then suddenly uh, an orca pops up beside your boat with its calf and just sort of accompanies you, it looks at you and then swims away. Um, there's this radical otherness there um, that is clearly, however much humans, quote unquote, manage or quote unquote, impact the earth, there's this radical otherness there in those animals that I, I think is a salutary reminder that this place is not entirely ours. There are other beings that live their lives, that have their independence. Uh, and so on this debate between how much should we step back and how much should we manage, I think there always has to be room for stepping back and admiring that otherness. Yeah, and I've, as Emma Maris framed it in terms of the role, what a role could be, and um, she leans on the side of um, more engaged management f on, the, on the ecosystems, is a role of a gardener. And is that... Is that fair enough to say that it's because that seems romanticized to me? Um, what is this? What does this role of the gardener um, mean to you? Yeah, that's a really good question. And um, Emma Maris and I did a radio interview about this, and, and it was fun because we were kind of trying to figure out: Are we that different in what we think about this? And um, at the end of the day, so the conclusion was: You know, we're reasonably similar, but Christopher is a little more standoff, and Emma is a little more manage uh and <laughs> and garden um now you know the thing about gardening is or the word gardening is it's a much more gentle term than uh manage or control or dominate or something like that you know that there used to be a sort of uh a, a human-centered literature that that said what the human role is is to uh bring into into line and control and dominate the earth right um now Gardening is not dominating. Anyone who's been a gardener knows that you don't dominate your vegetable patch. Uh, you, you do what you can, and then uh, the the weeds grow, and um, you know, the birds come and pull up your seeds, uh, and and the the flies come and uh, munch away on the leaves. And so, gardening is not controlling. Um, gardening is a little closer to the the side of recognizing this non-human agency. Um, but, you know, gardening still is imposing a human design. You know, when I think about my garden, we're getting ready to plant here in Montana in a, another sort of month or so. Uh, I'm going to have a design in mind. I'm going to put things where I want them to be. And when stuff comes up where it's not supposed to be, I'm going to pull it up uh, or move it somewhere else. Um, so gardening is a, is a philosophy. It's a, a management type of philosophy. Um, and you're right, it, it's, it has a sort of bit of social construction to it because it puts humans in a role that they think they can and should occupy. Um, and so it's a whole sort of way of approaching the world, which, um, you know, it has its merits in certain places. Uh, but I, I, my, my, my outing myself here, my fear is that uh, gardening can quickly turn into a heavy-handed heavy kind of management that is not desirable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I appreciate that. That's a, a, 
a pretty keen transition to helping the the listeners, the audience that may not be as familiar with this ordering of ecosystem conversation to what are some of the the practicals or, or the technologies applied to it. So you detail a lot of these in your book and you just talked about some of the m- moving things in the garden. Um, can you detail a little bit more about what that looks like on a macro scale for this ecosystem order? What are some of the actual practical things that this means? Sure. So, you know, humans have moved plants and animals around since humans have moved, basically. Uh, you know, we bring useful things with us and, and things that might uh, improve the aesthetics of the places uh, where we plan to live. I mean, that's sort of part of, of human and natural history. Um, but a lot of it has been sort of fairly small scale. It's, it's been fairly sort of aesthetics based uh, or, you know, perhaps food based. Um, we, we seem to be entering a different age where knowing what is happening to ecosystems uh, and ecosystems are changing and you know, the driver here, one of the main drivers obviously is climate change. Um, we're moving into this different phase where we look at ecosystems, or at least we can look at ecosystems and say this species is, doesn't have a big future right here. It's getting too hot or it's getting too dry. I think it's going to have a better future over here. Um, 500 miles north or 2,000 feet higher in elevation or something like that. Uh, And so this uh, practice of assisted migration would allow us to decide where species uh, can best survive. And so under the veil of of sort of an altruism for species that, you know, we just want them to survive, they're not going to do very well where they are right now. Uh, under that veil, we start making decisions about what belongs where and who gets to live in which different way and in which different place. Uh, and so we start to design ecosystems. We make ecosystems to order uh, through assisted migration. Um, in, in a way, it's a it's a decision about who lives and who dies. Um, we make choices uh, based on our best knowledge uh, about where particular species should go. Um, Another option here is to genetically modify a species so it can do better in a different temperature or in the new changing world that we're in. So we might decide we can alter a gene in a bull trout, uh, which makes the bull trout better able to tolerate warmer waters. Not possible yet, but uh, perhaps we're on the cusp of that. So that's another practice that goes alongside assisted migration in allowing humans to sort of make the world into what they think it needs to be, uh, imposing human design, uh, imposing human expertise uh, onto the world in order for that world to, according to our lights, to do a bit better under changing conditions. And, you know, let me, let me stress, there's, there's altruism at, at the heart of this. This is a desire to do something for the species that are under threat. So it's, it's, there's no evil intent here. But at the same time, if you do that, you make the world into a human construction, much more than we've ever done before. You deliberately turn this world into something that we have designed. And there's a line by uh, Jason Mark, who's a, a writer down in uh, California, who says, when you look out on the world, and you see nothing but yourself. You're living in a hall of mirrors, species narcissism on a planetary scale. Uh, 
And I think, uh, I think Jason sort of nailed it there that um, even if you think you're doing the right thing, and even if you're doing this for the best interests of the plants or, or the animals, you're still creating a world according to your own terms. Uh, and I, I feel a little uncomfortable about that idea. We've been talking a lot about what us as humans can do. We started with kind of really small nanoscale technologies, reordering, designing artificial organisms, and now managing kind of other species and ecosystems. But what about us? Uh, where where do we live? Where do we fall in this whole thing? You have a whole chapter um, that is dedicated to this understanding of uh, cities. So tell us a little bit about where, I mean, we've talked about all the ways that we can interact and manage, but where do humans fall in this whole thing? Yeah, so I, I'll tell you a little bit of backstory there. Um, when I started putting this book together, coming from the environmental sort of literature, um, I wanted to talk about the world around us. You know, I, I was sort of so concerned, so wrapped up in what was what were we doing to the stuff that's out there. And then my editor sort of came along and said, um, "This is this is interesting stuff, Christopher. But uh, what about us? You know, where are we in all of this? Um, <laughs> what are humans doing to themselves?" And uh, I sort of realized that that's part of the story too. Um, it's not my primary focus, actually, because um, if, if you get into the story about what humans are doing to themselves, you encounter a whole different set of debates about um, you know, humans turning themselves into cyborgs or downloading themselves onto um, computer substrates so that we live no longer uh, by biology, but we live by silicon. Um, and these were a whole lot of debates that I was sort of unprepared to enter. But I took the editor's advice seriously and, and I said, all right, I got to say a little bit about humans here. Um, and what, when you look at urbanization and, I, and you know, the world became more than 50% urban in 2007, I think, in terms of its population. Uh, and there's no turning back there, right? You know, you, you cross this threshold where mm -hmm. more than half of the population live in cities. And as time goes on, it's going to become a larger and larger population or percentage of the population. Um, that makes us into a different kind of being. Um, I mean, literally, evolutionarily, we have to adapt to different kinds of surfaces, different kinds of sounds, different kinds of patterns of light and illumination, different kinds of encounters. Um, and we're sort of in that transitional period right now where we're going from being organisms that evolved in one type of environment to being organisms that now exist in another type of environment. And of course, humans are very adaptable. That's why we're such a successful species. And there's something very exciting about being in a new environment. Um, but I think it comes with a, a sort of certain elemental cost. And, and one of the, uh, the ways I illustrate that in the, in the book is, is how much we talk about the weather. You know, you're sitting in a coffee shop in Manhattan or something like that, and you're talking about the storm that's coming in. Um, you know, you're talking about the the spray uh, that that's coming, being whipped off the waves uh, in the Hudson. There, um, we are still connected elementally to these natural forces. They're still part of our DNA, part of our being. And and I I, I think uh, along with a lot of the chapters of the book, I I try to sound a note of caution 
about saying, yeah, we can let this go and it's all going to be all right. Uh, we're just going to become something else. Um, so I talk about urbanization and, and how uh, I get into a little bit about um, artificial light and the disruption to circadian rhythms and whether that's a health problem for humans. There's some debate about whether it is or whether it isn't. Um, I just try to warn that you know these changes are are challenging changes for biological organisms, and you know we need to just sort of be careful about the way we move through them. Yeah, I just saw, uh, and I didn't read it, but I just saw a, a new paper out on the idea of light pollution that I want to unpack a little bit more. But you have, I'm going to ask the a, a huge question here because you have a whole chapter devoted to it. Tell us how to turn back the sun. um this is very topical actually if you keep your eyes on the news right now there's a lot of stuff about this um so some of the technologies i describe in this book are very complicated this is actually a remarkably simple one if you put dust in the atmosphere you turn back the sun it's that simple if you put something in the atmosphere that is reflective you interfere with a portion of the solar energy that comes in through the atmosphere and down through the troposphere to the surface of the earth. So the challenge is, you know, how do you do that? Can you, can we sort of deliver particles up into the stratosphere? And, and the answer is, yeah, it's actually not that difficult. You can deliver them by plane. You can deliver them by a hose and a balloon, um, hoist a balloon up to the stratosphere and pump stuff through this hose and, and, uh, emit it up there in the stratosphere, up at about 60,000 feet. And there's all these stratospheric winds constantly blowing up there, so the stuff soon mixes. And suddenly you've got a screen, a filter, uh, in the stratosphere, which is going to take out some of the incoming solar radiation. And the idea is, if you calibrated this and did it very carefully, you could take out just enough to compensate for the extra heat that is getting kept uh, around the earth by those greenhouse gases we put up there. So it's uh, intended as a way to counterbalance the excess heat that is accumulating by turning back some heat before it's had a chance to come in. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell us what you enjoyed most about doing the research for this book. What was the topic area for you that just if you could have wrote the whole book on it, you would have. It's a tricky one. <laughs> the, the, some of these technologies are uh, uh, sort of super exciting. Um, if I can answer that your question in a slightly different way, <laughs> um, one of the things that, that for me was incredibly engaging about the book was encountering people on both sides of the arguments. And uh, maybe I... I I would highlight of, of the chapters here, the climate engineering chapters and the synthetic biology chapters, encountering people on both sides of the arguments who are people who I thought were just fantastic. Um, you know, when, when you go into a contentious debate, you sort of think, well, I'm going to like the people on my side and I'm not going to like the people on the other side. <laughs> um, that wasn't what I found at all. You know, what I found was that there's people on both sides who are sort of pursuing these technologies for the right reasons with an impressive intensity and creativity and with an impressive openness to critique. And so in the climate engineering case, you know, going to these meetings where 
you know, I'm a philosopher and I'm interacting with scientists and, you know, raising questions about the technologies and, and asking sort of difficult ethical uh, things about, you know, are, are they, is this the right way to go? Or is this going to be just? Um, the way that the, the scientists sort of took that with uh, sort of grace and open-mindedness um, was just remarkable to me. Um, you know, you expect a lot of polarization. You know, we, we sort of specialize these days in polarization. Um, but I, mm -hmm. I didn't find that. Um, I found people who were sort of welcome, welcoming potential critics into the room uh, and trying to listen to all sides of the debate. Um, and I think that there's a reason for that. And, and it's a reason that's kind of at the, at the heart of the book here. The reason is that things are becoming different now. You know, the stakes are becoming much higher. In the age of the Anthropocene, you realize that there's something big afoot here. You know, there's something changing and it really matters. You know, there's many lives at stake. The whole shape of the future is at stake. And so a lot of the, the scientists and researchers and advocates, they're not just doing things because they think it might be interesting or there might be money to be made. That They're doing things because they see that there is a lot, a lot to be gained or to be lost here. And it, in some cases, these technologies are going to affect everybody. In climate engineering, you know, I'm glad you brought that one up uh, towards the end here because climate engineering is sort of the quintessential case where when you put stuff up in the stratosphere, everybody on Earth is affected. You know, that's not something you're just doing for um, Massachusetts or you know, for southern Italy or something. You're doing it for the world. It, it, it will be the whole world that is affected. And so you cannot just embark upon a technology like that just because you think it's cool or you know, because, you think it, because you think it's the right thing to do. You have to engage. You have to get input from all different uh, sectors, uh, all different demographics, all different cultures. Uh, you really have to take seriously the decision about whether to go ahead or not. And I was so encouraged by how many scientists I met who seemed to get that and seemed to recognize that this is different now. This, this is big. We need to broaden this discussion. So for me, that was, that was just very motivating. It was exciting. I, you know, it, was, it was great to be able to be part of those sorts of discussions and, and to see people you know, kind of trying to create these conversations as much as they could. Yeah, the debates were fantastic. Uh, like I said, the way you framed the book through the debates was something I hadn't experienced before, and it was great to just feel a part of the story. I I want to go back to something that you wrote in the book that I didn't touch on, but it sounds like you kind of just led us into it. And it's this idea that you suggested that moving forward, this this has to be a democratic discussion. Like This has to be decision-making, not from just science as the decision maker, but um, everyone being involved. And um, that that seems crucial to this notion of the synthetic age. So I appreciate you bringing up the way that the, the debate is fuller. And it's excellent to see that kind of the scientific community is embracing more of the democratic decision-making process. Yeah, but let, let me be clear. To, to make decisions democratic, you got to keep pushing. You know, you got to keep trying to be involved. You got to keep trying to keep the conversation open. Um, there's always a tendency to sort of slip into the, all right, we've got this figured, we can handle this, you know, we'll take it from here. Um, and because these technologies are so powerful, uh, I think it's essential that, that people 
first of all, know what's going on. And that was really the main motivation for writing the book is I, I sort of wanted to say, hey, look, do you realize how big some of these things are? Um, so first, people need to know what's going on. And then second, people need to engage with it and they need to have a seat at the table and they need to see that they are stakeholders with some of these technologies because some of them are global. Some of them will affect all of us. So everybody is a stakeholder. Um, so, you know, this, this sort of twin purpose, learn about it and then get in there and talk about it and argue about it and be involved. So you heard it here. Dr. Christopher Preston invited you to take on your seat at the table and become a stakeholder in these issues. So use this book as your opportunity to kind of get your foundation, but then continue to be a, a part of the discussion. Dr. Preston, we are really thankful that you joined us here and we've taken up a ton of your time, but I want to finish up with the final question that we like to throw out here on the channel. What are you working on now? Ah, yes. Um, so I mentioned animals. I mentioned, uh, Animals as a portal into wildness, that line I really enjoy. Um, towards the end of, of this book, I tell a little anecdote. It's, it's a tragic anecdote about somebody being killed by a bear in Yellowstone National Park. Um, and for me, that sort of really prompts deep questions about as this world becomes more uh, humanized, as the technologies reach deeper, what is going to be the role for animals? Are we going to transform animals with technology? Or are we going to let animals be? Are we going to leave them out there for surprise encounters uh, and for aesthetic experiences and just for the magic of being on this planet with other beings? So I'm really kind of gripped by this. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not just a technology guy. I, I, I'm sort of a natural world guy too. Uh, and so I'm, I'm sort of interested in thinking and writing about um, the role of animals in this future that we are in the process of shaping. Excellent. Looking forward to reading that. Well, we just want to thank you again for joining us, Dr. Christopher Preston. It was a fantastic conversation. This is an excellent book. Please grab it. And thank you so much for being a part of this channel. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I really appreciate your interest. Thank you. Thank you.